From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Greetings to you who are listening today. I'm Vern Jewett, coming to you from Balmy, Florida. We're going to be looking at one of the most amazing texts in the New Testament this month, and the title of our study is going to be Living Sacrifices. That may be a hint to some of you that we are going to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is from the New International Version. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm very excited to share some thoughts and study with you on these verses. What a powerful and amazing text. These two verses beautifully describe the intimate relationship with the living God to which every believer, you and I, are called. Chapters 1 to 11 has brought to us historical and doctrinal truths It's almost like a treatise, as Paul's written it, about God and Jesus and Israel and the church. Now in chapter 12 through chapter 15, he turns his attention to practical Christian living. This is the major turning point in Romans. The entire flavor of what is happening as well as the subject is going to change. These two verses arguably constitute a beacon in all of Paul's recorded writings on the subject of holiness, especially with our understanding of it as a living faith in a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. The themes he addresses are broad, central to the Christian life. They include some clear but startling teaching on what constitutes worship, what is holy, what pleases God, and the spiritual power of a renewed mind. He also identifies what will subvert and prevent a Christian from discovering God's will and points us to what will enable the discernment of God's will. We are challenged to understand all of this as a radical change in the way God's people experience him and serve him. I want to introduce these two verses to you in a general way to begin. The first verse, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This verse is about what God wants from us. And what that is, is permanent, total commitment to him. The second verse, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is about what God wants to do in us, and that is transformation. They describe a way of living, sadly, not experienced by many Christians, an intimate living relationship with a living God. Now, this will be a three-part series on Romans chapter 12, so we'll be here for the next two months as well. Paul is addressing the Gentile and Jewish believers in Rome. We're quite sure that the church there was several house churches, since at least five are mentioned in the epistle itself. Some would be Gentile, some would be Jewish. An overriding theme for us to remember as we study this chapter and actually this series is that God will accept you as you are, but God will not keep you where you are. Let's take a look at verse 1. What God wants from us. Ernst Casemann in his Romans commentary describes the term offer, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, as permanent total commitment. So the nature of our offering is to commit ourselves completely. In the verse, the context is clear that bodies really speaks of ourselves, which is not an uncommon uh, usage of it in the New Testament. More than 44 years ago, I stood with a combination of excitement and quivering knees in a Salvation Army chapel in Atlanta, Georgia. Beside me stood Martha, my beautiful bride. Eventually, the minister came to those very decisive questions. Will you? Now, Chip Ingram, in his wonderful book on Romans 12, entitled True Spirituality, says that at that moment, when I replied, I do, I implied, no, I don't, to nearly three billion other women in the world. They may not have known or cared, but I did, and Martha did. A wedding is once for all, but a marriage is for a lifetime. I gave Martha myself and all of myself exclusively. That's what God wants, all of us. We sing a chorus, often not just a part. He wants all of your heart. All he wants is all of you. So when we ask the question, what does he want from us? What is the nature of our offering? It's not something. He just wants us. Paul uses this term offer earlier in Romans 6.19, actually several times in that chapter. But listen to this verse. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness." Both passages, in Romans 6 and now in Romans 12, are about holiness. 
He's talking to people who have been saved, but need to take another step in their spiritual lives. I think we've mentioned before that the tragedy of modern evangelism is in calling many to faith, but few to obedience. So the nature of our offering, what God wants from us, is permanent, total commitment. What is the reason for our offering? The very next phrase in verse 1 tells us, in view of God's mercy. I love Dr. Witherington's translation, because of the compassion of God. To be honest with you, this is a part of verse 1 that has opened up for me as I've prepared this podcast in recent weeks. Friends, I've been studying these particular verses for 50 years. In the late 1960s, one of my very first sermons was on this text. But I never paid close attention before to this key phrase, because of the compassion of God. Yet it's such an important part of the teaching. Why does Paul say we should offer ourselves to God completely? Well, listen to Chip Ingram at this point. I love how he says it. Our motivation is not to gain brownie points in heaven or stars on the great refrigerator in the sky, but it's a response to his mercy. It's grasping that our sins have been removed, that we are forgiven loved, adopted, filled with the Spirit, and heaven-bound forever and ever. This is what motivates us to say thank you in the way that God requires. Saying thank you to God's grace and mercy is saying, I believe you are so loving and good that I will give you what you ask for. And that's me, all of me, holding nothing back. The reason for our offering, because of the compassion of God, we give ourselves to him in gratitude. And that brings us to what is probably the key central phrase in verse 1. This astonishing command to be living sacrifices. I would suggest this was a pretty revolutionary statement. Paul knew exactly what he was doing by introducing the entire discourse on Christian living, which is chapters 12 to 15, with the language of sacrificial ritual. It's difficult for us to grasp how stunning, even shocking, this teaching was to both the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. Jewish Christians understood sacrifices as substitutionary, offerings to God in their behalf. The dead animals sacrificed were substitutes for their guilt and their sins. The death of Jesus on the cross, however, was the final consummate substitutionary offering. So here Paul is declaring two foundational truths. First, God will no longer accept substitutes in our relationship with him or our service to him. No more substitutes. Secondly, God will no longer accept dead sacrifices. He will only accept living, 
breathing offerings of whole persons who seek his will supremely in their lives. In many ways, this is the highlight of our text. It stands out, this phrase, living sacrifices. I think it's impossible to stress this truth too much today in light of the prominent teaching and understanding that essentially makes being a Christian a matter of only praying the sinner's prayer. We rejected that skewed and partial view of salvation in an earlier study. Salvation is new life, and God the Holy Spirit enters us for the purpose of reforming our character. Ours is a living sacrifice, which means we offer ourselves every day over and over again to God. Let me say it again. God doesn't want a ritual or a dead offering or something from which we bring in our hands. He wants us, all of us, and nothing else. In fact, the old covenant practice of offering a substitute is now obsolete. No more substitutes from us. Colin Brown, writing in the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, on the subject in the word sacrifice, and specifically on this text, says it this way. It is life, not ritual, which is now the true sacrifice of the people of God. Now we come to verse 2, a very well-known verse. Many of us have memorized it at times in our lives. Verse 2 deals with what God wants to do in us. In previous podcasts, we learned that we don't have to measure up to a standard of behavior. Here, we simply have to offer ourselves completely to God and the Holy Spirit as he lives in us. We become living sacrifices, and we now discover that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. So what God wants to do in us is transformation. Now, words matter. This may be the first time in our podcast series where we've had a good example of how critically important words can be. Now, I want us to look at two words and two pictures of the persons they describe. The words are conformed and transformed. We are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. A very important part of the grammar of this verse in the original language is the passive voice. And I only mention it because it is so important. It tells us that both of these actions are initiated from outside the sanctified person. In other words, it's not something that we do. It's something that we allow to be done to us. Paul does not say, you transform. He says, you are transformed. And despite the NIV translation, Paul does not say, do not conform. He actually says, as the RSV and most versions indicate, do not be conformed. 
The actions come from outside of us. Let's look at each of these words. The word conformed is used in verse 2 to describe a Christian who is willing to be changed by the influences around them in their outward living. The Greek word has a root meaning of appearance. Here in its verb form combined with the word same, the whole idea of being fashioned to have the same appearance as the world around us is at the heart of its meaning. So here's picture one. I'm going to give you two pictures. Picture one. Someone whose outward appearance contradicts their inward reality, producing a fraudulent, untrue picture of who they really are. What is outside is not what is inside. This person misrepresents or disguises their true nature. The same verb form of this word is used by Paul along with the word to change in 2 Corinthians 11 when he describes how both false apostles and even Satan change their outward appearance to seem like apostles of Christ or an angel of light. The root meaning is they masquerade or disguise to hide their true nature and only appear to be Christian. Here's that sense of the masquerade. Let me give you examples. If you hang a bushel of apples on a telephone pole, does that make it an apple tree? Or if I say, pack my car, does that make me a Bostonian? If I don't smoke or chew or go out with girls that do, Am I entirely sanctified? <laughs> Paul's reply in Greek would be the equivalent of no way, Jose. The text says, don't be conformed to this world. Now, the word for world is aeon or this age. Let's talk about the world. Very important in this passage. David Wells, in his book, God in the Wasteland, says, Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. In the context of the verse, the world stands for what opposes God's will and what is not holy and not pleasing to God and not spiritual worship. You see, the rest of the New Testament helps us define the meaning of the world. 1 John 2.15 says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. These two value systems, the world and God's will, are incompatible, even in direct collision with one another. It doesn't matter what we're thinking about whether it's the purpose of life or the meaning of life, how to measure greatness, how to respond to evil, about ambition or sex or honesty or money, community, religion, anything else. The two sets of standards diverge so completely there's no possibility of reconciliation. It is a fundamental transformation of character and conduct that Paul is calling us 
from, away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. We had a wonderful Bible conference at Lake Junaluska last August and uh, our wonderful teacher, Diane Yuri said this, everything that is holy is about self-giving. Everything that is unholy is about self-interest. Friends, we live in a self-reverential culture. Again, Diane's term, a self-reverential culture. Conforming to this world involves conforming one's life to something other than the pattern of Christ. Paul is not calling for believers to abandon this world, but to live in it while not being of it. And the words of Jesus to that end come to our mind. Now here's the second key word, transformed. This word is used in verse 2 to describe a Christian who is radically changed in his inner being. This is interesting, at least it was to me. The word is morphe, and the root of its meaning is an outward change that comes as a result of an inward reality. The actual complete word here is metamorpho, which most of us would recognize because it sounds like the English word metamorphosis. I had trouble with science all the way through school, but I do remember because we got to bring caterpillars into the classroom, learning that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly by means of this change called metamorphosis. Obviously, the butterfly is simply the final state of a caterpillar. They are essentially the same creature. I like to think of it as the caterpillar having a butterfly inside of it. The outward form of the butterfly is the true expression of the earlier state of the caterpillar. Now here's picture number two. This is someone whose outward appearance truly expresses their inward nature. This person's behavior and attitudes are a true reflection of their character. They are whom they claim to be, and their words and deeds are the living out of their true nature. They are a truly transformed person by the presence of God's Holy Spirit and by their deep abiding faith in Christ. Along with each of these podcasts, we provide you with some notes and, and opportunities for further study, which accompany each of the podcasts. But I think it does us good even while we're in the middle of sharing together to stop and reflect at points like this in our study. Let me ask you, does Paul's description of these two ways of living resonate with you? Which picture describes you best? Don't we at all times struggle with conforming to the culture around us when it does not represent our Christian beliefs and values? How would you describe the role of the Holy Spirit in the process of being transformed by the renewing of our mind? How does this teaching help us understand holy living? 
Listen to it again. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'd like for us now to consider two amazing changes that are taught in these verses. Paul is describing the way in which the new covenant fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has forever changed how God's people live. In verse 1, what is forever changed is how we worship. Perhaps one of the greatest truths of the gospel is taught here. In the Old Covenant, the realm of worship for God's people was focused on the temple and the synagogue. Worship was centered on the priesthood and the public gatherings with all of their ritual and ceremony. Now, worship is expanded and redefined to the realm of everyday living. What changed? As we've studied in previous lessons, God now lives in us and accompanies us through every moment of life. When Paul says to the Roman Christians, both Jewish and Gentile, that we are living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, it is a stunning and shocking announcement, pronouncement. Verse 1 says about offering ourselves to God all day long as we go about our normal lives, that this is your spiritual act of worship. Well, that made me say to myself, whoa, is it possible that we as the church have failed to embrace the total reorientation of worship that comes with accepting Christ as our Savior and receiving the Holy Spirit? What did you think of as worship in your life? What is worship to you? What comes to mind? This text tells us that as we walk and live and breathe and engage every day, we are offering our spiritual act of worship. A few months ago, I guess a couple of years ago, I wrote down these things about worship and holiness. You can have holy conversations with friends and strangers. You can write holy letters and emails. You can cook holy meals. Writing letters and emails are worship. Cooking meals can be worship. Games of football and dominoes can be holy. Decorating your home can be a project of worship. Paying bills is holy business. Schoolwork is a holy exercise. Holy can apply to every word you speak. Worship can be present with every step we take and in every relationship we have. This text teaches us that everything we do as we live and walk in Christ is worship. I wonder when millions of Christians relegate their understanding of worship to only public gatherings and certain ritual acts, have we not fallen back into Old Covenant thinking and practice? 
These verses describe the amazing privilege of believers in Jesus who partake in the new covenant and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit to walk intimately with God every moment of every day. This, in fact, is our spiritual act of worship. This is holy living. Now, the second amazing change is found in verse 2. We dealt with the first half of the verse, but the second half says that we can be able to test and approve what God's will is if we are being transformed by the renewing of our minds. The word test and approve is the word that means to scrutinize in order to decide. It can be translated and often is to discern. Paul explains how a Christian is able to do this in an amazing but clear way. How many believers today agonize over trying to discover God's will? Just as Jesus' death and resurrection forever changed how we worship, it has forever changed how we discover God's will. I know I've tried to discover God's will, even as a believer, by using only my own resources. And as a pastor, I've counseled many over the years making the same mistake. Here's the principle. The discernment of God's will is contingent upon the offering of our whole lives to him as a living sacrifice. The first question we must ask ourselves in seeking God's will in our lives is simply, have I given permission to God to direct every part of my life? If there are things not offered to him, or if there are areas where I keep control, then I can't be assured of knowing his will. Offering ourselves completely to God is a crucial part of holy living. Now let's summarize what we've seen. It's not an overstatement to see Romans 12, 1 and 2 as one of the most encompassing statements in the New Testament about the choice one makes to be a Christian. Here is the choice of life. Let's summarize the two completing worldviews and ways of living that are taught in our text. I would call the first one living in Christ with a world orientation. Here's the description. A Christian who lacks spiritual power, whose life is patterned after the world around us, whose outward life contradicts some inward realities, who intrinsically lacks integrity in living and seeks to please self and others. The other way of life and competing worldview I would characterized as Christ-oriented living in the world. Listen to the difference. A Christian who experiences spiritual power, patterned after Christ as our Lord, their outward life expresses the inward reality. They're intrinsically living with integrity, and their desire is to please God. Perhaps I can give my own testimony here. 
I remember a time in my life I'd been saved for many years, and I'd been through a lot of things. I'd attended two colleges. I'd been in and out of the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam era. And I was in a full-time job as a music teacher. But I was just not fulfilled. I was looking for anything to fix the outside. Finally, one night, God got my attention. It happened 48 years ago in Greensboro, North Carolina. It was like an alarm going off that I finally could hear. It was no longer a silent alarm. I thought the problem was out there. And all along, it was inside me. It's so important for us as Christians to examine ourselves daily. Accepting Christ into our lives is the most important decision we'll ever make and brings the most radical change possible to our lives. Believing in Christ is an ongoing way of living that is characterized in this text as the renewing of our minds. The Holy Spirit is the agent of that renewing as he leads, guides, and grows us in our spiritual lives. Holy living is allowing the Holy Spirit to be opportunistically redemptive in every part of our lives. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. But before I close, I want us to listen to Dr. Witherington's words speaking on our textual passage in Romans 12. This is what he says. Paul's appeal is extremely appealing. Transformation is possible. The status quo can be disrupted. Problematic habits and practices can be overcome. And substantial healing can occur in this life. In other words, through moments of crisis and seasons of progressive growth, we who have wholeheartedly sacrificed our entire selves to the renewing, reshaping work of our Creator become increasingly holy and whole persons. Will we present ourselves as willing, ready, compliant sacrifices, willing to follow the ways of our exemplar, Jesus the Christ? Will we sacrifice the thought patterns and thereby the behavioral patterns of this world? Consider those words. Will we present ourselves as willing, readied, compliant sacrifices, willing to follow the ways of Jesus Christ. What do those words mean to us today in terms of our everyday lives? Let me leave you with the thought I spoke just a few minutes ago. We can allow the Holy Spirit to be opportunistically redemptive in every part of our lives the mundane, the marketplace, the stranger, the chance encounter, the tedious, the unique, all hold the potential to be means of grace. How exciting a life is that? May you and I be living sacrifices that give honor and glory to God. 
I look forward to being with you next time. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.